I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verses 17 through 18. We will not be reading verses 1 through 18. So not a huge section of scripture, but one that's very, very important. I'm planning on um, not just addressing uh, the Greek text here, but talking about uh, what Paul was talking about to the Philippian congregation and to every Christian thereafter. But I also want to um, uh, frame it in in historical context. Um, it is very important that we understand how what Paul was talking about has been something that uh, pastors in particular, and apostles and so on, the servants of the church have been doing for literally uh, two millennia since uh, the first century. But, <coughs> but before we uh, come to the word of God, uh, let us go to the God of the word and let's ask for his help. Oh, sovereign Lord, I do pray now that you would help me uh, to divide your word aright. Let me not go astray to the left or to the right or say anything that is not fully in keeping with your word. I do thank you, O oh Lord, for uh, this word from the apostle who loved the church so much that he was willing to write it even from a Roman dungeon. He cared and was concerned not just about the Philippians, but we know about your people throughout the world, the ones who were and the ones who would be. And so we are thankful for this testimony of a beloved pastor of his uh, congregations spread throughout Asia Minor and Greece and uh, even in the area of Palestine, Antioch, Syria, those places, Lord. He cared about them and was thinking about them more than he thought about himself. And I pray, O oh Lord, that as we read his testimony, we would have the same kind of spirit. Help us, O oh Lord, then to listen to the word that you have given to us and apply it in our own lives. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Philippians chapter 2 and verses 17 through 18. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The subject of being or making sacrifices for the kingdom of God, making sacrifices for the people of God, uh, is not one that's very popular in our day and age. Uh, we are far more likely to see people who have an attitude towards the church, who have an attitude towards Christ, as though he's a value added. Um, often people will, will treat uh, their congregations and so on kind of like a restaurant, as a, as a place that's a place of convenience where we receive a, a spiritual snack from now, uh, now and then, but not really anything that we would be willing to change our entire life for. Uh, Paul, however, was operating from an entirely different mindset. Paul was willing to give everything to Christ and to his church. He was willing to sacrifice all uh, for their well-being, that they might be presented as a living sacrifice to God. Now, you remember, Paul is writing these words from a Roman dungeon, and clearly uh, he is getting the idea that it might be likely that at the end of this particular imprisonment, uh, that he would be executed, that the final verdict would be that he had to die for the faith. And yet, while we can imagine that the Philippians themselves would be very grieved by the idea that their beloved minister uh, might be put to death, at the same time, he is not, and I hope you notice this, he is not sad about it. 
He, uh, he is not grieving and wailing. In fact, he says something that uh, goes against what we might expect. He says he is glad and rejoices. He has been, you remember, as he has been writing up to this point, he's been encouraging them to die to self, to put aside their pride, and instead to, to exalt Christ and to serve one another and to increase in their faith and their devotion to Christ. Uh, and he calls this the sacrifice and service of your faith. Now, what is this sacrifice and service? Uh, the word, therefore, sacrifice is a Greek word, thusia, and it's uh, a very important one. Morton Smith, uh, theologian, uh, I would recommend his uh, double volume, Systematic Theology. He explains what's meant by it, what's meant by this Greek word thusia. He says, this is a term that properly speaks of the act of sacrifice. It may also be used to refer to the thing sacrificed, or even more broadly speaking, to anything offered to God as obedience or praise. Paul uses this term to speak of the sacrifice of himself. Yea, and if I am offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. Again, in the same epistle, he speaks of the gifts of the Philippian church to him as a sacrifice to God. But I have all things in abound. I am filled, having received from Epaphroditus the things which came to you, uh, from you, an odor of sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. The writer to the Hebrews speaks of the sacrifice of praise. Through him, then let us offer up a sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of lips which make confession to his name. I wonder, just breaking, I'm, I'm not done with the quote, but how often do we fail to think of our singing as a sacrifice of praise to God? When we sing to him, we sing his, all of his wonders, his redemptive works, his, his, uh, his amazingness, if I can use such a, a, a trite word. But are we awestruck when we come into Christ's presence? When we pray, is that too a sacrifice of our praise lifted up to him? I, I hope it is. But the sacri uh, offer up a sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of the lips which make confession of his name. That is, the praise was a sacrifice or offering to God. In this sense, the Lord's Supper was first called a sacrifice because it was a thank offering to God and because it was attended by alms, which were regarded as tokens of gratitude to the Lord. As we come to the supper, we are attending upon, in one sense, a sacrifice of praise to God for what he has done to us, and a recovenanting on our part, where we confess to the world, we are Christ's, and he is ours, and then we are trusting in him. It is not uh, a, a sacrifice of representing uh, Jesus uh, as an abiding or atoning sacrifice, as the Roman Catholic Church conceives of it. It's not a, a re-sacrifice in any sense, but it is a sacrifice that speaks of the faith of those who take part in it. You are identifying yourself. You're setting yourself apart. This is the, the meal that is the family meal of the people of God. It is a declaration to the entire world that you're his. And as such, for most of the world's people, the world's Christians, that is, it is something that is attended on by danger and possible sacrifice. You're identifying yourself with Christ absolutely. Uh, in the Muslim world, baptism in particular is seen as the last straw for a Muslim family. Once a child uh, who was raised uh, in the Muslim faith gets baptized, that's the point at which they become ballistic. In fact, I, I've spoken to uh, missionaries who've worked in the Muslim 
world who say that uh, many of their many of the people who come to their Sunday schools, their parents are not particularly agitated by that as long as they don't get baptized because then they're making a declaration to the entire world about their newfound faith in Jesus Christ. Well, elsewhere, Paul speaks of the entire Christian life as a sacrifice, a thusia to God properly understood. In Romans 12.1, for instance, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. In other words, everything that you do and that you think, let it be a sacrifice of praise to God. Wherever you are or whatever you're doing, let it be directed to him. But what then, if that's the, the sacrifice and service of the Philippian congregation, if we have a handle on that, and I hope we do, what does he mean by saying he is being poured out as a libation or drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith? Well, you know that as a faithful minister, after his conversion on the Damascus Road, or more properly in Damascus itself, after he had been confronted by the living Christ, his life from that point onwards had been spent preaching the gospel that he once sought to destroy, building up the kingdom of God, bringing people into the fold. And once they had been brought in, encouraging the growth of their faith and encouraging them to be willing to sacrificially serve the Lord and his people as their calling, as their reasonable service to the Lord. He who had sacrificed everything for their sake, had endured to the uttermost, had given up his life, had suffered in their place uh, the pains of an eternity in hell that would have fallen upon him, it is therefore reasonable that they respond to that awesome sacrifice of Christ by being willing to sacrifice and serve him themselves. And that is what Jesus had uh, called his ministers to do. That's what Paul had been called to do. Jesus had even warned him that his ministry would be one that involved suffering as he went along. And we remember, yeah, he recounts about, uh, and so does Luke, his, his faithful assistant, how he was stoned, fought with wild, wild animals, was shipwrecked, constantly subjected to uh, humiliation, beatings, and so on. He sacrificially served the Lord. And the people who, when he's talking about this libation or the, the drink offering that's poured out, would have understood the image of a Greek priest who sacrificed an animal uh, to their false gods and then poured out a drink offering of expensive wine upon it. But Paul was not offering, obviously, sacrifices of animals to false gods. His objective was to make worshipers for Christ. Calvin comments this way, he says, that however the whole passage may be more clearly understood, he says that he offered sacrifice to God when he consecrated them by the gospel. There's a similar expression in Romans 15, 16, for in that passage he represents himself as a priest who offers up the Gentiles to God by the gospel. Now that process of offering up new worshipers to God through the gospel was very costly to himself. His life was literally spent or poured away in achieving it. And like that, that costly libation that was poured out upon the sacrifice, yet he is glad, despite that, that he had opportunity to serve Christ and the congregations of Christ that way. In fact, one of the things that you see in, in, in Paul as he is writing, he's very conscious of, uh, he calls himself the chief of all sinners, the least of the apostles, and yet... He was used so greatly by God in spreading the gospel. He was the man, you remember, who brought the gospel 
to Europe. He was the one who introduced it into to Greece. And so, looking at those sacrifices, Paul would have said the sacrifice was worth it because it was the most important and eternal work that anyone could do. You can build a city like Rome. You can fill it with expensive architecture, grand arches, monuments, and so on. But ultimately, you are still building something that can be swept away by time and tide. And in fact, most of uh, ancient Rome, which was so splendid, the eternal city, has been reduced by, to ruins by, by war and barbarian invasions and so on. So you see these splendid ruins, but that's, that's it. It's not something, even the stone doesn't last forever. But think about this, the work you do for the kingdom, that lasts forever. It's a trite little truism, but one life to live, it soon passed. Only those things that are done for Jesus will last. Those are the things that go on eternally. And so he was involved in eternal work. And now, having taught the Philippians and the other congregations the truth, he is willing to seal his testimony with his own blood. John Calvin points out, this is to teach the gospel from the heart when we are prepared to confirm with our own blood what we teach. What would it have said to, about the gospel if he wasn't willing to lay down his own life, to seal it to them? Now, what does that look like in practice outside of the Bible, outside of the testimony of Paul? Well, let me give you an, another example from Christian history. Uh, you may not be fil uh, familiar with the Bedford Meeting, uh, and that was a 17th century particular Baptist congregation, but you will surely be familiar with the man who preached them from 1656 onwards. Who is he? There's the minister of the Bedford Meeting. Bunyan! Very good. That's very good. His name was John Bunyan. Well, after the restoration of King Charles II, uh, the toleration of dissenters like the Baptist congregation in Bedford was suspended, and in November of 1660, Bunyan was arrested, tried, convicted, and he spent the next 12 years in prison because he refused. Whenever he was brought back in front of the magistrate, he solemnly refused to give up preaching. He would not do it. During that time that he was in jail, he wrote his spiritual autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, and he began a work on, uh, the work on his most famous book, which we all know as Pilgrim's Progress. That was how he spent his time in prison. Now, we may be helped to understand how costly that decision, though, that he made to spend the next 12 years in prison rather than to say to the magistrate, no, I'll stop preaching, I'll stop teaching, I will no longer serve the congregation in Bedford. We can see how costly that decision was uh, from his own testimony. He recorded his feelings about it. Um, he writes this. It's an extended quote, but I, I think it's illustrative. I found myself a man encompassed with infirmities, the parting with my wife and poor children hath oft been to me in this place as the pulling the flesh from my bones. And not, o not, not only because I am somewhat too, too fond of these great mercies, but also because I should have often brought to my mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was like to meet with, should I be taken from them, especially my poor blind child who lay nearer my heart than all I had besides. 
Oh, the thoughts of the hardship I thought my blind one might go under would break my heart to pieces. Poor child, thought I, what sorrow art thou like to have for thy portion in this world? Thou must be beaten, must beg, suffer hunger, cold, nakedness, and a thousand calamities, though I cannot now endure the wind should blow upon thee. But yet, recalling myself, thought I, I must venture you all with God, though it goeth to the quick to leave you. Oh, I saw in this condition I was as a man who was pulling down his house upon the head of his wife and his children. Yet, thought I, I must do it. I must do it. To be willing to sacrifice everything like that, to sacrifice even to the rending of your soul as you saw what it was putting your children through. That, brothers and sisters, is being poured out as a libation upon the faith of your flock. It was not merely serving them, though, that constrained him, but ultimately it was his desire to serve God. Calvin, who was also, of course, poured out upon the congregation in Geneva, explained it this way. He said, From this, however, a useful lesson is to be gathered as to the nature of faith, that it is not a vain thing, but of such a nature as to consecrate men to God. The ministers of the gospel have also here a singular consolation in being called priests of God to present the souls of the believers to him. For with what ardor ought that man to apply himself to the pursuit of preaching who knows that this is an acceptable sacrifice to God? He saw this as his service, his sacrifice to God. And that also explains, doesn't it, why the apostles were so willing to suffer punishment and death. They saw these things as merely part of their acceptable sacrifice to God. We read in Acts 5.40, and they agreed with him, uh, and when they had called, this is the Sanhedrin, when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, and that would have been beaten 39 times with rods. Imagine somebody whacking you 39 times on the back with a broomstick. And you have some idea of what they endured. They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And when it came time to die for the sake of Christ, the apostles did not see that as, as a tragedy. They didn't see it as a failure. They saw it, rather, as the finishing of their race and thus a, a triumph. That's why Paul was able to say to the congregation, what did he say? Rejoice with me. I, I don't know if you've ever, uh, the longest I ever ran competitively was 13.1, a half marathon. Uh, and I have to tell you, after a while, you're like, why am I doing this to myself? <laughs> this hurts. And then your body's like, we could just stop putting one leg in front of the other if you want. I'm willing, right now. <laughs> if you can shut brain down for just a little time, we can sit on the side of the road and, and you know, we'll be happier that way. But you go on. And you go through the agonies and the cramps and all of those things. Marathons are hard. I, I can't even imagine doing twice that distance. <laughs> Um, but when a loved one crosses the finish line after a race like that, you don't go over lamenting and wailing and rending your garments. Oh, oh, oh you poor person. Oh, no, what do you, you celebrate. You celebrate that they kept going all the way to the end, even if they're, you know, not close to the front. It's still the achievement that they crossed the finish line. They, they did not give up. They did not stop running that particular race. And so Paul, when he is writing from that Roman dungeon, probably a little while after he had written to the Philippians, 
And he's writing to his faithful disciple, Timothy, and he is in a lamentable state. He is in a stinking Roman uh, dungeon, and I use stinking quite literally. A nasty place to be with very little support. And yet he is not listing his woes. He's not lamenting his condition. Instead, he writes this, encouraging Timothy to continue the work after he was gone. And so 2 Timothy 4.5 says this, But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He knows this that when he is called home by the Lord, when he's put to death by the Romans, he will in that moment pass through the gates of what Bunyan rightly called the celestial city, and he will receive a reward that is imperishable. He will enter into glory forever. He had endured affliction for the sake of Christ here on earth, but he says in Romans and Romans 8 that those afflictions are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed within us that he's about to pass into a state in which everything that he suffered will seem like nothing at all and will be simply a testimony of the Lord's persevering grace in his life at the end of time and that he has nothing to worry about. He knew for certain that the moment his heart stopped beating, he would be safe forever in the arms of Christ. And so why would he lament why would he fear? In, in a real sense, it was, you know, I have to tell you, I, I ran. I was so glad after I crossed the finish line to stop running. No more pain. The next day, however, no, there's more pain. You know, um, but that's not what happens in heaven. We cross the finish line and pain is over forever. No more tears. All of them wiped away. No more sin. No more suffering. No more struggling with your conscience. Oh, wretch that I am. No more having to say that. And that's what he was looking forward to. So what was he rejoicing in as well as the fact that he would be more than a conqueror from ever uh, at that point? He was rejoicing over the sacrificial offering which the Philippians are bringing that they are already bringing to Christ. Uh, they would have been beginning to endure persecution, not taking part in all of the Hellenistic temple rituals and, and going and, and uh, celebrating the various bacchanals and so on, not you know, indulging in the drunken parties that your friends were. were uh, and let's face it, it was an ex-soldier's colony. Nobody parties quite as hard as ex-soldiers, uh, as a general rule, if they don't know Christ. But these were people who were instead saying, we have another allegiance, a higher allegiance, a higher purpose. We serve the Lord. And so he knew that they were going to be persecuted and that they were going to go through trials. And so he can rejoice that they were willing to endure. And he saw them persevering even in the face of death. God is, had used him to bring the Philippians to faith, and now they were surrendering their life to Christ, giving up all for his sake, which is exactly what Paul wanted to see in them. And, and so this would be an honor 
for Paul personally. He would thank the Lord as he thanked them that he was able to, to be involved in their salvation. One of the things that I found in my life is there is no greater joy, and I, I mean this seriously, seeing somebody brought into the world was a great joy. It's, it's overwhelming to be there at the birth of your child. Um, it's, a, it's a struggle, but not quite as much for me as it was for joy, I admit, you know. Um, but it's just a, it's a beautiful thing. I, I never didn't weep with all four of the children, not because I got to church this one too, but, um, but because I was so grateful to God that he had brought them out into the world and we had another child. But as wonderful as that moment is, nothing compares to the joy of seeing somebody come to faith in the Lord, to be born again, to know that they are safe forever from whatever the world can do to them. And so it's a joy to parents to bring them into the world, but it's a much greater joy to bring your children to Christ and see them raised up. That's the kind of joy Although he didn't have any, probably Paul was never married, didn't have any actual children of his own, and yet he had so many spiritual children, had rejoiced again and again to see them brought forth, to see them coming to the Lord. And so he says, I rejoice with you all. He rejoices with them because they have experienced and are experiencing the joys of redemption in Christ. And he knew that he, if he was martyred, he would still obtain that crown. He would still be more than a conqueror, and that his labors amongst them had not been in vain. And what a joy that is. Bunyan described, uh, who had gone through that kind of sacrifice himself, described the sacrifice of Paul himself. He says, here was love. You will say to persons, and I will say also to things, to all the righteousnesses of God that are revealed in the world, that all the elect might enjoy them to their eternal comfort and glory by Christ Jesus. For whether we be afflicted, says he, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. There he's quoting 2 Corinthians 1.6. The end of a man and his design, if that be to promote righteousness, he using lawful means to accomplish it is greatly accepted of God by Christ and it is a sign he is a lover of righteousness and that if he suffereth for so doing he suffereth not for well-doing only as to matter of fact but also for his love to the good thing done and for its sake it is possible to suffer in a good thing not just to suffer persecution the difficulty of it the the affliction uh, when I arrived before I started the church plant here in Fayetteville I, I had hair and it had not turned white. Within two years, it had all vacated the property and, uh, and was beginning to go gray. It, it's hard. But let me ask you, in concluding then, do you love others this way? Do you struggle and sacrifice to bring others, particularly your children, obviously, to saving faith? Is it your greatest joy and your desire to see others brought into the kingdom and to know the joy of knowing Christ that you know? And what better end can there be for a Christian to be spent this way? You do not have to be a pastor to be spent in that way, incidentally. You can sacrifice for the sake of Christ wherever you are. And then take the advantages or opportunities, rather, that, that Christ offers you to, to spread his word. And then 
brothers in particular, to be mentors to others. Do you know how much I owe to various men who came alongside me, were willing to teach me the things that I, I, I needed to know, were willing to endure my, my sincerely knuckle-headed questions about the faith and teach me the truth? I, I praise God for those men. They were poured out on me. They sacrificed their time. They sacrificed their attention. They sacrificed time with their families. One of the things that I always remembered when I was sitting with a, with a married man at lunch and, and talking about the gospel or going over problems that I was having in the Christian faith was he had chosen to spend time with me instead of time with his loved ones. He had made one sacrifice in order to serve me. And I appreciated that so very, very much. Not as much as I should have. Not, I, I didn't really understand it until I became a pastor myself. But they were poured out as a libation upon my faith. That should be something we're striving to do with others. I, I want to be like Ignatius, uh, who is a disciple of John and uh, a faithful episcopoi that is overseer of the Christians at Antioch. Uh, after almost 40 years in the ministry, he was arrested and he was taken to Rome. And he knew he was going to his execution. Uh, it's recorded of him, the party made its way overland and by the shipping routes following the footsteps of Paul as they passed Smyrna, Ephesus, Philippi, and Thessalonica, Christians gathered to ask his blessings. Along the way, Ignatius wrote seven letters that rank among the most famous documents in church history. In his letter to Rome, intending to precede his arrival, Ignatius begged the brothers there to avoid using their political connections to hinder his expected martyrdom. You cannot do me a greater favor, he wrote, than allow me to be poured out as an offering to God while the altar is ready. What, what a blessing. And so if, if I do die in harness, if the, the harder persecution that I see over the horizon does end up coming, what have I to fear? I'm safe in Christ. And if I am poured out as a libation upon your faith, then that's the best end that I could ever possibly have achieved. And so... I don't want to experience, uh, like Ignatius was, being eaten by wild animals. But at the same time, I'm not afraid of death in, the, in any sort of final sense. I know that because of what Christ has done, I am more than a conqueror. And I hope you do too. I hope you have that certainty. One of the most painful things that I've ever witnessed is people dying without Christ. The terror as they're about to leap off into eternity without hope. And I think with most of them, Many, in fact, there is an acknowledgement, oh no, I've made a terrible mistake. But not knowing or desiring or being willing to rectify it even at the end. And that's a sad, sad thing to watch. But I hope that you will be able to leave after being poured out as an offering to God. I hope that will be the way that the Lord blesses you as well. Let's go before him now. God our Father, help us to use our lives that we've been given and the talents that you provide to us in order to strengthen the faith of others, to bring them to that abiding faith, that salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us that joy of seeing people come to faith in you, O oh Lord, and help us to celebrate with them, and then do all that we can to see others growing in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us not to complain about what we have to give up, but rather to look forward to all the things that we have to gain. And, O oh Lord, all of those things were won by you and your sacrifice for us. Help us to remember that.